G'day, Tommy Waite here. I'm an Australian writer and a friend of Beyond the Zero. My novel, Any Day You Can Die, a transgressive satire about digital nomad gringos going loco in Colombia, is now available in audiobook format on Audible across all markets. Here's a taste. My story starts here because it has to. During my teenage years, I decided that regular life wasn't going to work out for me. I wanted something better. I wanted to be original and free, a libertine living honestly outside the law. So that's the life I chased. Kind of. I've always been held back by fear. I never had the guts to go balls deep. Yet breakthroughs happen at the strangest times. It wasn't the sex. It was the possibility of my new life in Medellin. Alright. So that was a short snippet from my audiobook, Any Day You Can Die. FYI, I cut out all the naughty words for that sample. If you want the filth, you're going to have to download the real thing on Audible. I'm pleased to announce that I'm running a giveaway for Beyond the Zero listeners. There's two audiobook copies up for grabs, one for a US listener and one for a UK listener. Here's how to enter. Follow me at Tommy Waits on Twitter. Post on Twitter with the hashtag any day you can die and tag myself and Beyond the Zero. Be sure to mention whether you're in the US or UK. You have until midnight Friday, February 11, 2022 to post your tweets. I'll then randomly select two winners, one from the US and one from the UK, and publicly announce the winners on Twitter on Monday, Feb 14, 2022. Thanks for your time. Hope you enjoy today's app. Welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Zero, celebrating the centenary of James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Bob Carr. Bob is a former Premier of New South Wales and was a Federal Foreign Minister. He is currently the Climate Change Professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's also a writer and a lover of literature. Welcome to the show, Bob. Pleasure to be with you, Ben, to talk about books. <laughs> You've had a stellar career in politics. You're a long-standing Labor Premier here in New South Wales, and you had a stint as Foreign Minister in the Gillard-Rudd governments. Could you tell us a bit about how you got into politics? I was a 15-year-old who developed if I can take an expression that the late Norman Mailer used about his teenage focus on becoming a writer, he said, I had a crush on the profession of writer. Well, I had a, an infatuation with the profession of, of politician. I wanted to be a career politician as young as 15. And I stuck to that. I was, to take another Norman Mailer reference, I think it's Conrad. I was loyal to the nightmare of my choice. And I stuck at it. <laughs> well, you grew up around uh, Eastern Sydney, Maroubra, and um, in this area uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, How did you find growing up here? I think as a, a young kid, it was terrific. It was a working class area on one of the fringes of Sydney, but it had access to beaches um, and to bushland that hadn't been yet cleared for housing. There are a lot of interesting facilities like a, an old hospital on the coast that called a, 
an infectious diseases hospital at one mm. time. Um, it had a leprosarium in it. It was a throwback to the late 19th century. Uh, there was the state's biggest jail. Um, there were Chinese market gardens and there were huge rubbish tips with protressable household waste <laughs> and rats active in them. Um, there were old, um, old gun emplacements from, from the coastal defences in the Second World War when we feared a Japanese invasion. So it was, there was pl plenty of open space and, and, and terrific beaches. Um, the beaches increasingly polluted by untreated sewage. It was, it was a great place to grow up. Um, when I was older, though, I think I became aware of the suburban dullness of the place. Um, I didn't think it had any culture. Um, I thought everything was second rate and mediocre, but my, my hopes were embedded in politics. I was fascinated by politics and in making a career in politics and learning the craft of politics. And that gave everything interest. It's a funny place to grow up because I grew up uh, a little bit later than you did, but I understand the, the neighbourhood very well. Places like La Perouse where the um, gun turrets, you know, you can still go and see them and, and uh, Little Bay as well where the quarantine station was. It's a really interesting area to grow up in. And, um, but I do see your point that it is a bit of a, it's not really a cultural mecca and I remember the culture that I received was from a local secondhand bookshop and, uh, and the Ritz Cinema in Randwick, and that was about as far as it got. Yeah, and I, I, the, 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 the big thing for me was the mobile library, a van with books in it that would call at Malabar, I think for about the time I was 14. I think it would call every second week, every fortnight, and you could go in, in that. I loved it. Um, uh, it was a peculiar assortment of books. I, I, I might borrow something on the history of IG Farben, <laughs> the German German chemical company that uh, figured in war crimes investigations, or, a, or or the first English language biography of Mao Zedong. Um, and I, I picked up Charles Dickens's uh, Barnaby Rudge, um, odds and ends, odds and ends. But producing that discernment in a kid. Oh, this is this sort of a book. Um, and, and then our, our new school, Matterville High School, a very ordinary public school. I was in the first year to go through it. It was there because it was a new release area. Um, getting books that, that were the first investment in a school library. And I still remember books. I, uh, I looted for their content. Um, I remember the first work of fiction that kept me up at night, uh, devouring the uh, the next chapter, unable to put it away. It was um, Herman Walk, W O U K, who wrote a quite formidable uh, book on World War Two. Uh, this was a book called City Boy, about the adventures of a teacher's pet um, growing up in in, in in the Jewish culture of New York. And his adventures on a a a, uh, a holiday camp, a summer camp, um, and it was terrifically written. And it was the first work of fiction um, that was vaguely adult, although written for young adults. I also remember when I was fifteen, reading my first book 
uh, of witness literature. It was called White Rabbit. I've got a copy on my shelf here that I found in a secondhand bookshop, but it had a, a it, it gripped me. It, it, it's the account of someone in the French underground in the Second World War, a British guy who spoke perfect French, and his experiences in German captivity. And from the moment he was picked up by the Gestapo, right through to his survival in Buchenwald concentration camp, um, the exposure, the exposure to the criminality of um, the German the German Nazis was something that has stayed with me to this day. Encounters with books when you're very young can give you lifetime patterns of interest. I completely agree. I, I It's funny because I remember when I was about, uh, must have been about 10 or 11, I think the Bowen Library down in Maroubra opened. They'd refurbished and uh, going in there and going from the children's section into the adult section and discovering all these writers at a young age uh, really put me on this journey myself as well. So I completely yeah. agree with you. Yeah, and I remember um, when I was 15, that is in the third year at high school, on a family holiday in Port Macquarie, and... One of the library books I took up to read on holidays was a biography of an Australian Prime Minister, William Morris Hughes, the first biographical study of Hughes, our World War I time Prime Minister. Um, and another book on Australian politics, I forget what it was, and from a local, one of those local secondhand bookshops full of miscellaneous stuff, most of it paperbacks. Of all things, I bought... I bought the Confessions of the Commander of Auschwitz, William Hoess, um, or Rudolf Hoess, and again read that with a fascination and horror about what it exposed. And you just remember that was that would have been 1963, so that's that's fewer than 20 years after the end of the Second World War. And with a lot of my early reading. I was born in 1947. Um, it was literature about Australians as prisoners of the Japanese or um, William Shiro, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, literature that shed some light on what I'd heard adults talking about when I was four or five years old, that is the war. One of the first questions I remember asking my mother is, what do you mean when you say before the war? Because a conversation was loaded with that locution, before the war. Where were your parents from? Um, my mother was, grew up in Botany, which is uh, um, an area near where I live now. And my father came from North Sydney because his father, like him, a train driver, had lived in a, a little, little cottage above Luna Park. My father had a splendid childhood um, on Sydney Harbour, getting to know, the, getting to know the, the coastal steamers by name and by sight um, as he uh, paddled around um, that, that old polluted industrial harbour that was pre-war Sydney Harbour. Wow. In terms of your political idols, who did you look up to in terms of politics? I, 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 
I developed a, an adoration for Ben Chifley again in that 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 year that made me the year I turned 15, 1963, the year I joined the Australian Labor Party and its local branch at Malabar. I I encouraged by my uncle Byrne read. Um, a biography of Ben Chifley. It was a serious academic biography, so it'd be one of the few of any Australian Prime Minister available then with a rep, with an aspiration to scholarship by Finn Crisp, a professor of politics, a former public servant, and a great sympathiser with this former train driver who rose in Labor's ranks, was treasurer during the Second World War, and became Prime Minister, serving from 1945 to 1948. 49, making the catastrophic error of, of, of attempting to nationalise the, uh, the private banks. But um, he was seen as a Labour hero, and um, that, again, was a formative influence, and he became my hero. But as soon as I started to dip into American history, I developed a, uh, a deep affection for Franklin Roosevelt, which has stayed with me and deepened to this day. Mm. In terms of Australians, I guess, more recently in politics, um, I think that that some of the, I guess, the, the limelights in the Labor Party of recent years, we, you know, we talk about people like Paul Keating and Bob Hawke and, and Gough Whitlam, of course. Um, how do you feel about those figures today? I, I think they've made a huge contribution to Australia and um, that they... They had rich personalities. I, I grew up in Young Labor, sponsored by Paul Keating, who was a couple of years older than I. Um, but in Young Labor, he made me chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. So we go back a very long way. Um, and Hawke uh, was someone who I followed closely and I think was a great reform Prime Minister of Australia, mainly because he, he backed Keating and then Keating became a significant reform Prime Minister of Australia, talking about our integration with Asia, about Aboriginal reconciliation, uh, about the notion of Australia being a republic, having its independence and, and having its, its own international character. So we owe a great deal to them. Um, and, and they really do assert the relevance of Australian Labor. It's just a matter of whether the generation that's there now in the leadership of the Australian Labor Party can live up to their formidable standards. Mm. All right, let's move on to books. Um, your book, My Reading Life, it was published in 2008. It tracks your journey, uh, as you say, from a pretty crummy education in the 60s to a reader of classics and modernists and, and writers like Patrick White and, you know, obviously people we're going to talk about later like uh, James Joyce. How did that love of literature develop? I think I had an English teacher who made a big contribution to it. She, she gave us books to read uh, from her own library, like, the start of our fourth year in high school, uh, she brought in a box that had her own copies of Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. And she said, it's now time for you to read these. They're not in the curriculum, but you should devour them. And that was a great stimulus. And it was just so rare in my high school education that teachers ever attempted to extend us, to challenge us. And I wish that had happened in other subjects, but it didn't. Um, and she, she gave me a history of literature, which I devoured, and somehow planted the idea that one should keep reading. Um, and in an arts education, which I devoured, history and English, political science, um, I also 
pursued that, but I slowed down after university and what I needed, I needed a good guidebook to be able to tackle, for example, the, the great Russian novels, which just sounded so formidable and so potentially boring. Um, or, or some of the French classics, again, in, in translation. And I couldn't find a guidebook. And I, I went all those decades uh, with the Iliad and, and uh, the Odyssey unread, unopened, uh, but with a vague sense that I was lazy in my reading, devoting myself to the political narrative and political biography um, and, and a bit of contemporary fiction. Something happened, though, when I was Premier, and I think it might have been pursuing a break from the constant pressure of the Premier's job. Premier is like, a, for, for our listeners overseas, like, like a US governor, uh, only the, the pressures are, if anything, greater because the, the constitutional responsibilities are, are wider um, and the media focus is very intense. Uh, you're sort of the, the mayor of the whole state and you're, you're accountable, held accountable for everything. I think seeking a relief from the pressures of the job, I found a Saturday afternoon or a, a Sunday morning free at home, and I wanted to plunge into difficult fiction. And by this stage, I don't know, late 40s, getting into the 50s, I had the maturity to tackle it. And in quick succession... I devoured Proust and Balzac and Flaubert and the Dostoevskys and the two great Tolstoys and the lesser Tolstoys, um, as well as uh, uh, Marquez. Um, and I, I also found that I wanted to educate myself about the history of Rome. And in my book, I give an account of doing that by exploring historical novels about Rome which eased me into the, the time frame. Um, and that was it, really. Um, I, I, I smashed through the barriers and, and found that there's nothing to it but to do it, to, to, to open a Tolstoy and then to discover after 90 pages that the characters have fallen into place. The challenge of Russian names with the confusing reference invoking of a, a patronomic um, can be overcome. And the long chapters where you think, where is this author taking me? Um, in the end, charm you if you stick with what's happening on the battlefield or in Pierre's induction into the Masons. And suddenly you've got what Nabokov called a sense of the vision of the author. And you approach the next book thinking, how does this compare with Tolstoy? What is the vision of this author? What's he introducing to me to? Where's he taking me? I remember on a holiday in Piazza Navona in a coffee shop in Rome, looking at the Pantheon, starting on Proust. And really having that question, what on earth is going on here? He's talking about an insomniac infant who can't go to, go to sleep until his mother comes to his bedroom, and having left the visitors, and kisses him goodnight. What on earth is this about? 
before the great themes of of um, snobbery and jealousy uh, gather pace and lead you forward. That's one of the things I really love about your book as well is because I feel like it's a really personal journey for you that you've kind of discovered a lot of these things without a guidebook, like you said. I think you've discovered them on your own. And in your book, you really do tell that journey in quite a quite a really nice personal sense. So I really do love your book and I highly recommend it. Yeah, that's what I felt sorry for people who were saying, I've tried to read War and Peace and I just can't do it. I want to reach out to them and say, look, that was my difficulty too. But here are a few tips. After about 90 pages, the characters will fall into place. Don't worry. Second, second, think of, think of two key characters, Pierre and Prince Andre, because they're going to be the they're going to be the poles around which the book, the action of the book moves. Or alternatively, think of it. A couple of great families, uh, the Rostovs being one of them. They're an important family. A lot of this book will explore the Rostov family. Um, um, and and think, think of the contrast between them and the name just escapes me, it is the, the, the family of uh, very self-interested, uh, manipulative um, uh, brother and sister um, and that's all you need that's all a reader needs a few clues and, and, and some help like saying there will be little diversions that you will find hard and there will be long chapters for example long chapter giving an account of the death of, a, of an aged count uh, who will leave his fortune to his illegitimate son Pierre um, but travel with the author and just savour it marvellous paragraph by marvellous paragraph. And you might be bored with some of the battle scenes, but these are some of the points Tolstoy is trying to make about the nature of battle. For example, the all-important point that after giving his orders at, uh, I think, at Borodin and uh, before that at, at Austerlitz, um, Napoleon had no idea what was happening in the tumult of the battlefield. That's a, an original observation by Tolstoy about the nature of warfare. Mm. There are half a dozen clues. If someone had given them to me, I would have, I would have said, said, right, I will waste no, no time. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let me get a, a decent reading copy and I'll leap in. Yeah. So that, those basic clues can be, can be shared about any of the works. I mean, yeah, I, I think a lot of people like I for all those years would be deterred by the challenge of the Odyssey and the Iliad. But, but if someone says, you might think of these translations, these versions, oh, that's, you know, that's a help. Uh, a modern poet uh, with a pacey and vivid rendition. Um, and someone else says the Iliad is very long and somewhat repetitive, but these are the major characters and they fall into place. Um, a few clues are very helpful. And, and it, just, it, just, it just gives a reader some notion of where they're going to be taken mm. by the author, the journey of the author and the vision of the author. Yeah, I think vision of the author and thinking about it in that sense is, is a really great point that you make. Um, and I think it does travel through literature when you think about 
what the author intended and uh, how he wanted his book to be read or her book to be read. And I think that makes a huge difference to the reading experience. Yeah, what, what is Colleen McCulloch's vision in her seven um, fat historical novels about Rome, um, incorporating Caesar's story, but giving you a whole lot of the backstory beginning in, uh, I think it's a, a hundred uh, BCE or 110 BCE uh, in, in her opening novel, First Man in Rome. And to have the chance to talk to her, as I did, um, she took 13 years of research. Her motivation was to tell Caesar's story, but she realised she had to go back to Marius and Sulla, Gaius Marius and, and Sulla, and the civil wars that they were involved in and the uh, battles for Roman supremacy and survival before she could make sense of Caesar. Well, that was her vision. It was bringing alive the Roman, the world of the Roman Republic and the great figures in it. Um, but what is the vision of Dostoevsky in The Brothers? It's, it's a running argument, a theodicy, an argument about how God can exist given the wickedness that stalks the world. That's a, a large part of it. But somehow it's also a murder mystery. Uh, James Elroy, the thriller writer, uh, told me once that he, he'd had that, the Brothers Karamazov, on his list of, uh, of uh, the world's best crime novels. So having a capacity to, to grasp the vision that's inspiring the author, the mission they've given themselves in the work is, I think, a useful way of approaching a classic. Mm. Speaking of classics, uh, today we're recording just before the centenary of Ulysses by James Joyce, which is one of my favourite novels. I think it's probably the one of the, that's probably the greatest novel, I think, that exists. Um, I know that you are a massive Joyce fan. You are at Bloomsday celebrations every year. And uh, I want to ask, how was your journey coming to this great work and your experience reading Joyce? Well, it was introduced to me in university English. Looking back, the fact is I was able to savour it, just reading it even without an annotation explaining the references, and that's interesting. There was enough there to be absorbed without someone by your side saying, well, when he's doing this, what he means is this, or uh, this is a reference that's going to be revisited down the track. Um, the other thing to grasp is that the echoes he sets up from um, Homer are not precise or that serious, in my view. For example, um, the chapter in Ulysses that's supposed to be, supposed to incorporate the chapter in Homer's Ulysses about the sailors and Ulysses held captive by the Cyclops in his cave with his sheep, um, that becomes a chapter we're in a bar in Dublin in the afternoon of the uh, memorable day. The, 
there's a, a character presiding at the bar called the citizen. His name is the citizen. His nickname is the citizen. And he's bullying and dominating uh, the ebb and flow of, uh, of drinkers who course through the bar. So it's, it's a rough and ready um, bow in the direction of the Cyclops in his cave dominating dominating life, but it's hardly it's hardly to be taken seriously. But Joyce apparently, with his classical education at, at uh, the Jesuit, that wonderful Jesuit high school he attended and, and at university, um, admired Homer. Um, there is so much in Ulysses. There's the, the great debate about, about Shakespeare involving uh, Stephen Dedalus and um, uh, some, some recognisable Dublin scholars from the era taking place in the Dublin Library. Um, there's the, uh, the whole funeral sequence, which I think is hilarious with Bloom's heretical reflections on the nature of death. death. Um, and there are the, the brilliant recurring motifs. There's the dream sequence um, that occurs between 11 and 12 o'clock at night. Um, that when all characters, all the characters and all the situations spin out of control, and then, the, and the, and there are the great slabs of, of parody passages that, that are parodies of uh, journalese, contemporary journalese, or of every style of the English language, sequentially from the time of, of Chaucer, um, with, with Rabelais thrown in. Um, it's mad. It's very funny. Um, Everything's in it. Um, there are lots of curiosities in it. Um, when in one chapter, uh, a character, I think it's Bloom or it might be Stephen, turns on the tap. This is in Eccle Street in, in, in Bloom's home. And Joyce has to give you, um, I think, several pages describing the uh, reticulation system by which the water the water comes from the reservoir through to the tap in Eccles Street. Um, there's no point to it, to the diversions like that, um, except this notion of capturing all of life in the pages of the book. And another, another this remarkable book, and another, another thing is just the appeal of the language. I think that's, that what me, that's what got me through it without an annotation in, in my first attempt. Um, he, he describes two shirts hanging on a clothesline as two crucified shirts. Um, someone talks about gin-hot words. A squad of constables marching out after a lunch of fat soup with food-heated faces, or rather they're debauched from their quarters, with debauch meaning applying to troops or a stream to issue from a, a raven or a wood into open ground or merge into a larger body or stream. Um, when he describes Parnell's brother playing chess, just one of the encounters in this journey through Dublin on this single day, he describes Parnell translating his bishop. And to translate is the verb to use when a bishop is moved from, from one seat 
to another. The bishops translated from, from Cork to, to Dublin, translated. And um, Joyce, he, he refers to slack-tethered horse, a slack-tethered horse. He refers to the snake spiral springs of the mattress. And his command of language and the scholarship, for example, in that chapter where the characters are debating the essence of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's life is just unrivaled. How anyone could have a vocabulary like this and the great resource. Oh, he put a lot of research into getting this material. Um, he, he would pursue the trivia and obviously looted the pages of newspapers and magazines. There's not enough words to describe how good the book is. And I was surprised because I've, I've read the book twice uh, completely. I still feel like there's something new every time I open it, but I find it so approachable in so many lovely ways. It's kind of, it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's so well-written and it's not, I think that the hard, uh, the idea that it's a really hard book, I think is, is probably a little bit overstated in my opinion. I think it's something that people should dive into. Like you said, just get right into it and read it and, and go for it. And I think this year, the hundredth year, I think would be a great time to start. There are a couple of books that I'd recommend as good guides for it. Uh, one is Ulysses Annotated um, by a scholar called Don Gifford, 1988. Um, there's an entry for every person and place and for every literary, cultural or historical reference in the text. But there are even more useful books that tell you what you'll encounter in each chapter and clarify it for you. It is... I still find it, having read it twice and having um, performed chunks of it at, at Bloomsday and heard chunks of it performed and heard a chapter acted by a wonderful Dublin actor at a Sydney Bloomsday some decades ago, I still need help um, for some of the chapters, uh, just some guidance to what is going on here. I like to fully understand the setting, the location, and, and the personnel, and, and you do need help in that. Um, and for those of us who don't know Dublin, these guidebooks help you with um, the, the topography of the city. There are some great maps you can have a look at and, and see exactly where all the action takes place. And I did find that really useful to, to mm. look at those maps and, and work out where things happened. And it does make me want to go back to Dublin at some point. So Yeah. yeah. You can also understand why it was banned because um, you, you don't need too much help um, to see how, especially with Bloom, it deals with human sexuality. I mean, he does masturbate twice in that day, once in the bath and once uh, lewdly observing an attractive young girl on a beach who then turns out... I don't know why this had to be the case, but she turns out to be lame. Um, and um, he's maintaining some sort of correspondence using a post office box um, with a woman who's responding to his suggestiveness and looking at the soft pornography available in Dublin at the time. And then you've got the great suggestive suggestiveness 
and appeal of the final chapter, which is told by Molly Bloom, who spent the afternoon, and Bloom knows it, in bed with her lover, yet talking about her own uh, sexuality, talks about him in the highest regard and extravagant fondness. Um, this, is, this is absolutely shocking to the, the Victorian morality that ruled in Australia and in the, in the United States at the time. It was, it was definitely pushing the limits. This is modernism stylistically and in content and in the, uh, the challenge it presented especially to, to Dublin's world of uh, um, uh, priest-ridden uh, politics. Yeah, it certainly did ruffle some feathers, and uh, I assume that he was quite glad that he was living overseas at the time when it was published, wasn't he? Yeah, it is a, a huge challenge to, to envisage how it might have been perceived, but there are enough people around um, who appreciated its formidable presence in, in the stock, in the emerging stock of modernist literature. But uh, then you've got the mystery of, of Finnegan's Wake. I think it was, was Martin Amos who said you can be angry with Finnegan's Wake because it prevented um, the writing of, of for example, um, another Ulysses. Or another couple of Ulysses, mm. um, let alone let alone more wonderful short stories like those in Dublin, or a, a shorter book set in Ireland, like Portrait of the Artist. Mm -hmm. For those who are, I guess, coming to Joyce for the first time, um, do you think there's a good entry point for Joyce? I mean, I, I tell people Dubliners is a great entry point. Do you think there's other entry points, or just jump straight into Ulysses? I'd, I'd want to read Portrait of the Artist. Um, um, it's got remarkable material about the family, his family, and that very funny sequence about a Christmas lunch where they get drunk and there's a marvellous fight over the table about Parnell, um, tearing the family apart. Um, there's his pursuit of prostitutes and of, of, of sexual adventure, uh, writing his own pornographic letters that he leaves on park benches, hoping, a, imagining that a woman or girl is going to read them. And the anti-clerical material um, based on the address by the religious brother to the boys at school about the horrors of hell that await them because of their sins. Um, but there's also, there's also the love of, of language, of words, um, the stubble-grown monkeyish face fattening upon the slime of lust, the slime of lust, scuttling plump-bellied rats, he uses words such as rictus, embrasure, coronals, that Joycean precision of language um, with a discussion between Stephen and the dean about the meaning of tundish. And it made me, it made me 
wonder whether that inspired Don DeLillo in his book Underworld, when he's got a sequence between a boy who's in a reform school and a Jesuit priest, very Joycean, in which the priest holds up his shoe and gives the precise word for every component part of the shoe. The only one I can recall is eyelet, the hole that the, the laces go through. Um, and the priest says, the word for it is to know the thing. Well, that's Joycean. I should write to Don DeLillo and, and just ask him to clarify whether that was, in fact, a tribute to Joyce. But you must read the short stories of Dublin as there are works of perfection in that, and it confirms what his landscape is. I think Joyce said, he said, um, the world of the, the world of the ash pit, the, the scruffiness, it's the scruffiness of his Dublin, yeah. um, uh, the genteel poverty at best. The, what, he, what he describes a few times, the sordid tide of life. Uh, he uses an expression, the mention of Clongos, the Jesuit school, had coated his palate with a scum of disgust. The old restless moodiness had again filled his breast. Now, this is beautiful. You can... You can um, you can you can read read Joyce to be thrilled by the language. Yeah, it is. It's unbelievable. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake yet, but I do want to read it at some point. Yeah, um, I can't. I've got a copy. It's an early edition, probably not quite a first edition, but I, I I might be able to bring myself to listen to an audible version of it. They are available. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure whether I want to struggle with the meaning. Mm. Yeah, I think he said he wanted to confound scholars for, for eternity, didn't he, regarding Finnegan's Wake? I thought he said that about Ulysses. Oh, maybe. Um, there you go. But um, either way, um, mm. either way he fulfilled it. <laughs> he fulfilled it in Finnegan's Wake. And I'm not. I'm not sure where the scholars of many, many of many of them have got what it takes to enter an enter an argument about it. <laughs> um, but I, I thought the Martin Amos criticism um, quite thought provoking. Without Finnegan's Wake, imagine what else we might have had in the yeah. the realm of the comprehensible. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I think I, I probably you know would swap it for maybe a couple more Dubliners or. Portrait mm. of the Artist, I think I agree with you there. Yeah, I would. I would. I would. Mm. We ran this stupid competition last year on this podcast where we had a World Cup of books and uh, we had votes. And by an overwhelming majority, the two finalists were Ulysses and Moby Dick. And I think they have really interesting parallels, but um, Moby Dick just won. But why do you think those two particular books have such prominence and such popularity and such love? Well, I think the sense that in Ulysses, you can find so much of existence and you'll have the experience of entering the heads of characters, a stream of consciousness technique, um, which is very close to capturing what it is to be alive. And it takes a positive view of existence, 
after weighing the whole messiness of life. With Moby Dick, I'm getting to the end of my second reading. There's a lot of life in that as well. And I suppose, I suppose the, the mythic quality of it, the mythic quality of it. But I really don't know how anyone could overlook the Odyssey. Mm. When that's the start of Western literature, and as someone said to me, it's been downhill since then. And there are marvellous translations of it. I like the Fagel's translation. And the sheer majesty of saying, um, here is Ulysses living with Calypso for seven years, and now he decides to leave the island. This is what the gods did to him when he was afloat. This is how he lost his crew. He went down to the house of the dead. He encountered people he'd known in the, the real, live, realist world of the Iliad. Um, I don't think that can be overlooked. Mm. And it's inspired so much in music, as in the operas, um, and, and in other literature. Um, so much of Greek literature, literature is about what happened to the Greeks after Troy, Agamemnon and the house of Atreus, for example. Um, what to make of Proust? I, look, I'm glad I read it. I don't think I can reread it because I think there are so many slabs of bad writing. I could take out segments of it, which are, wonderful social comedy that people from English-speaking world were associated with Anthony Powell or Evelyn Waugh. Is Anthony Powell's 12-volume novel, A Dance to the Music of Time, superior to Proust in its account of snobbery um, and society and its humour? It's very comparable to the best segments of Proust um, how do you rate Middlemarch? In a sense, the world of the English novel is small compared to the grandeur of the Russian novel. And I would think there's a case for, there's certainly a case for, allocate, um, for, for, for allocating a top-tier ranking to mm. Anna Karenina, Anna mm. Karenina, which in a way, which it has been said, is the more perfect novel than War and Peace. Yeah. War and Peace might be the novel God would have written. Um, Anna Karenina might be the most perfect novel ever written. But then we're, we're confronted by the perfection of Madame Bovary. Um, and didn't Woody Allen say that Flaubert's other novel, um, I've had a mental blank, um, uh, a sentimental education, 1869, a sentimental education um, is one of the reasons in its own why Woody Allen wants, wants to go on living because of a sentiment, sentimental education. The sheer perfection of these, of these pieces would make it credible for, for a fan to say, I want them in the, in the top tier. Mm-hmm. We'll get an, on. Argu an argument been without end. <laughs> That's right. We'll get onto your top ten shortly. Um, for those who haven't read Ulysses, what? Why do you think they should go and read it? I think the joy of the language 
the experience of getting inside the prefrontal cortex of other human beings, uh, the experience of living other lives, the sheer humour of it. It is a very funny book. Um, um, someone described it as being best understood as a gag book, um, a string of jokes. Yeah, it was Brendan Bing. Bing. He said the key to reading Ulysses is to treat it like a, a comedian would, as a sort of gag book. Um, and given that George Orwell said, um, uh, as long as I live, I, I, I want to take pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. There are a lot of scraps of useless information in Ulysses, but they all amount to this, a sense of what it was, be to, uh, what it was to be alive in June 1905 in Dublin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a fantastic book. And I think if people haven't read it, I think it's, it's the best year to read it. Go out, buy yourself a copy, get the annotated version if you want to. But it's uh, it's it's a life changing experience, I think. Yeah, it's a matter of as someone said with these great works of absorbing them in your consciousness. If you've the works we're talking about, if read by you with unfeigned enjoyment, you're not faking it. You are eager to be taken on that journey by Dostoevsky through the brothers Karamazov and you're eager to read it a second time. I remember putting down Flaubert, both Flaubert's and immediately rereading them, Madame Bovary and Sentimental Education. Um, you are, let's say it this way, you're a different person once you've got this relationship. You've stretched your consciousness. You've, you've taken in the vision of these authors. And, and, and what, a, what a diminished thing it is that to have a life that doesn't know firsthand war and peace, the brothers Karamazov, Joyce's Ulysses, Homer's Odyssey, and the others. Let's move on to the books that you're currently reading or you're looking forward to or you've recently enjoyed. Moby Dick for the second time. Yeah. Um, don't know what brought me to it. I think I, for a while I had reservations about doing it again. Maybe it was category of the overrated. But devouring it on Audible, which is a great experience to have a book read to you by an actor. Um, on the second reading, it's smaller, more digestible, more comic, richer less intimidating. Oh, yes, he's got a chapter devoted to whales in painting. No, I don't know what this has got to do with the narrative, <laughs> but the whole the book is supposed to be about the whale. Um, what's he telling me about the whale? Why the focus on the whale? It's, it's the mystery. These diversions are part of the mystery of the book. But I remember on this journey I'm now on, being, just being thrilled by Melville giving an account of this Pequod, this weird ship decorated with the jaws of whales, the jaws and the teeth of whales surging through the Southern Ocean. Um, 
passing other whalers returning after five years, uh, the maddened captain with a monomaniacal pursuit of Moby Dick, the extravagance of it. Um, no, there, there is a greatness in this, and, and, and as I said, a mythic quality in this. What is this author's vision? How did he come to this? And the one I've just put down with enormous pleasure, but I couldn't have read it, I couldn't have managed it when I was younger, is Lottie in, in Weimar by Thomas Mann. You have to know Goethe's short novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. But here is the vision of, of Thomas Mann. He's taking, taking the literary genius of this time, not just a German genius, but a, a European genius, someone who was courted by Napoleon given an award by Napoleon. And he's saying when this genius was a young man, he, he, fell, he, he fell in love with a woman, and this inspired him to write a little novel, novel The Sorrows of Young, young Werther, about this affair. And everyone knew that it was part of Goethe's early life and the woman who inspired him, they know by name. And now she's 66, and she comes to Weimar, which is really ruled by this, this um, uh, gauche young man from her young years who intruded himself on her and her marriage as the literary genius of the age, a phenomenal, the literary celebrity of, of the European world. And she's returning accompanied by a daughter, and she sent him a letter. It's really an exploration of genius. Three people visit her at the Elephant Hotel in Weimar um, and talk, talk to her because she's a celebrity who's come to town. And we get a tangential view of Berta's genius. It is man looking at what a genius might be. She thinks at the end of her two-week visit, she's been treated coldly. She thinks it's been a mistake on her part. She's aggrieved that she and her life and her betrothed were ruthlessly used in a novel that created Goethe's reputation, launched him on this stellar literary career. And her encounters with him have been less than satisfactory. She's an old woman. He's an old man. In the last chapter, she goes to the theatre. He's, he's, he's made his uh, servant and his, his carriage available and his box at the, Weimar, at the National Theatre in Weimar. Um, she sees a play that's sort of half satisfactory, like a visit. She comes out into the night, led by his servant. She's ushered into the carriage. And she becomes aware that in the darkness, the great man is seated there. He's not dismissing her. He's not dismissing his past, their past. He's coming. He wanted to come to terms with it before she leaves. It, it's a remarkable work. It appeared in 1939. So there are things about the German personality in it that are pre-echoes of, of uh, the 20th century. Um, I can't believe 
that in the last six months I've devoured Buddenbrooks, the novel he wrote as a 25-year-old, and uh, The Magic Mountain, this great mysterious work, and probably his most difficult work, uh, Dr. Faustus, which he wrote in 1947, um, which is about genius and music and the nature of the Germans, the notion of a, a great musician reaching a pact with the devil. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd be captured by the genius of Thomas Mann. It's, it's been a journey. I, I can't believe I've delayed, I had delayed for so long. Mm. And the one on that list that I, I'd steer from recommending people to would be Faustus. Um, but someone who knows the uh, landscape of 20th century music and um, the German musical tradition would get a lot out of it. Um, And there are some chapters that stand out almost in a self-contained way. Um, I might need to tackle it again, but then then there are the other novels, the Joseph um, Mm. series, um, um, and I've I've read part of them. I must return. They're about Yeah, it's like six or seven novels, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Joseph the Provider, Joseph and his brothers, um, a retelling of uh, the Old Testament story. stories. Mm. Yeah, an exploration of what? what? What's he doing here? Is he is he exploring the the Hebrew Bible? Uh, is he exploring the the Judeo Christian basis of civilization? Yeah, it's very interesting. But yeah, that's one I haven't tackled. But yes, hopefully there are too many books to read. But hopefully one day. It helps to see some of the sites, of course. We, we've, we've been to Weimar. And it's important to understand that it was a ducal city and that, that it was his home and his house is there, preserved as a museum. But Lottie, Charlotte, in Mann's novel, says it was a museum then. Hmm. In in uh, eighteen sixteen, um, um, he was a polymath, and he filled it with things he'd collected, um, interesting stones and uh, bits and pieces of of sculpture, classical sculpture, sculpture. Um, but here's the journey we're on in this world of of, of literature. Someone you you thought. There was a New Yorker cartoon that had two men at a bar, one of them saying to the other, I understand that you no longer have to you no longer have to read Thomas Mann. I've got to say that's not the case. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero and come back with Bob's top ten. This episode is brought to you by Australian Border Force. Tough on borders, children, and tennis players since 2015. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Bob's top ten. Yeah, I'll throw these out as challenges about the sure. top ten without trying to be definitive. Mm-hmm. Um, are we prepared to acknowledge what I think are the great slabs of poor writing <laughs> in Proust? In Proust. It is just 
toxically bad. The whole stuff about the uh, narrator's affair with Albertine, for example. Um, are we prepared to entertain an argument that in dealing with the Proustian themes, a the passage of time, Anthony Pohl is better? It's certainly funny. It'd be the uh, 12 volumes would be the funniest I've read. Can comedy be regarded as profound? You can't go past any top 10. You can't go past the Odyssey. That should be at the very top, I think. Um, and the Russians, you're faced with this challenge, the most perfect novel, Anna Karenina, or the novel that God would have written, War and Peace. I would come down, I suppose, for War and Peace. But the brothers Karamazov, um, I don't think can be elbowed off that list. And we haven't spoken about the plays of Chekhov. We haven't spoken about his several great plays that I've, I've now seen so many times. Um, Uncle Vanya, The Seagull, uh, The Cherry Orchard, The Three Sisters. Um, is there anyone, any playwright who can compete with this, which is an invitation to, to rate the Shakespeare's? Shakespeare's a category of his, got to be his category, a category of his own, but uh, the language of Macbeth, every corner of Hamlet, and then the opportunity of discovering Troilus and Cressida. You see a good performance, you're driven to the text, and you think, why doesn't this get the attention it deserves? Like a winter's tale overlooked, or like a play I spurned uh, in my chapter on Shakespeare in my book, uh, Love's Labour's Lost. But a close reading with the Arden edition and it's the help of its notes and a good performance, and you're introduced to Shakespeare's vision with this play. Mm. Very interesting. Are there some modern novelists that you think would be capable of getting onto a top 10 list, in your opinion? Well, I wonder about Marquez, but I might have been, I might steer away from 100 Years of Solitude to uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, um, The Leopard, uh, Lampedusa's The Leopard would be on the list of a lot of people, um, and um, I'm a bit challenged by contemporary American literature. I think people might be overexcited um, and very and busily faddish <laughs> in elevating um, um, contemporary American writers. Uh, again and again, I'm, I'm coming back to rereading what we might typecast as the classics, the books we've been talking about, instead of pursuing the contemporary. Mm. But there's got to be a place for the contemporary imagination. It's just that I find a lot of contemporary fiction derivative, uh, posturing, um, uh, gimmicky. Yeah. But then I thought there, there, there were elements of genius in uh, uh, Roth's The Plot Against America, imagining mm. a sort of uh, fascist, pro-fascist tilt in America in 1940. 
effectively mm. uh, 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 an alternative history, a novel about an alternative uh, universe in which America elected Lindbergh mm -hmm. and uh, did a deal with Hitler. I think that novel is really interesting because of uh, Roth using his own family, I suppose, in that alternative history. And it does, um, he does do it really beautifully. I think it's a great novel. Yeah. Um, and and like, like others by Roth, painful. Mm. It's, it's, it's painful. Yeah. All right. Well, before we wrap it up, um, do you want to tell everybody where we can get in touch with you and read your books and uh, hopefully, you know, um, catch up with what kind of things you're reading? Yeah, I'd like any, any suggestions um, for uh, discussions like this you're hosting, others, others are hosting. Um, I know there's um, Anthony Pohl mm. Society, are there comparable societies uh, for some of the other authors we've been talking about? There's a D.H. Lawrence Society. I know I visited his, his uh, hometown and um, the historic house, one of the several Lawrence houses, um, and we haven't got around to talking about the rainbow or sons and lovers, women in love. Mm. The rainbow, I think, rates is very special, and sons and lovers has got so much in it. Um, but um, bobjcarr at gmail.com, mm -hmm. bobjcarr at gmail.com, and please share your enthusiasms with me. And if you can get hold of my little book, out of print, um, but uh, I suppose procurable in, in some libraries and secondhand stores, it's My Reading Life, Adventures in the World of Books by Bob Carr. Um, and the first book that I recommended in it on the very first page was Primo Levi's If This Is a Man, mm. uh, which I nominated as the indispensable book, the indispensable book of the, uh, the 20th century. Amazing. Okay. Well, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you, Bob, so much for joining me. It's been wonderful talking to you. And um, I wish you a beautiful reading life. Thank you. And the same to you, Ben. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Thanks once again to Bob Carr. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod. And you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode very soon.